Hi everyone! Welcome to November. We're at the front end of two months of pure festivities, cliches, consumerism, depression, ecstasy, misery, love. The holidays can be all of these things for people, but I for one always look forward to them because while the hope of the quote-unquote most wonderful time of the year can easily be a letdown, um, it can also be perfectly contenting and just what we need in the middle of the exhausting lives that we lead. Um, speaking of what we lead, there are things that we also follow, like for instance my Facebook and Instagram, at SDA Millennial. <laughs> How did you like that segue? Two stars only? Ugh, okay, fine. But that doesn't change the fact that you should check out the rest of my content follow, like, comment, share, rate, etc. Also, you're always welcome to email me at adventistmillennial at gmail.com. And if you like this podcast or my funny videos, tell a friend about it. I would appreciate that and I would give you three meow meow beans. Okay, so what are we talking about today? First off, I am going to ask the question, how do you deal with criticism and new ideas? Um, I'll tell you about an exchange I had this week that left me a little puzzled, but also gave me occasion to ask myself this very question. Um, then we're jumping into the time machine and breaking the space-time continuum to hear from 21-year-old Emily. <laughs> you guys, baby me is shockingly similar to grown me, which... I'm not sure if that's a sign of consistency or stagnation. I'll let you be the judge. Okay, let's go. Okay, you guys, how do you take criticism? Do you take it well? Or, like most people, terribly? <laughs> and do you take things that aren't meant to be criticism as such? Uh, it's easy to see challenges to your thinking, especially if it's something that you hold dear, as a personal attack. I like to think that I hear new ideas and take critiques relatively well, but you may have a different idea about that if you've ever challenged me. <laughs> um, this week I had an interesting Instagram exchange with the host of another much, much bigger podcast that I listen to. Um, I was going to tell you who this person was, but I'm really not trying to make an indictment against a specific person. Uh, the reason I'm bringing it up is because I listen to this podcast regularly, and I usually enjoy it, but the host keeps having to readdress a question because, in my opinion, the answer doesn't make a lick of sense, and people keep asking for clarification because it doesn't. But if you ask this other podcaster, the reason people keep asking probably after it's been addressed multiple times is because people are too stubborn to accept the answer, even though it's definitely right. Um, but it just illustrated to me how we can get so attached to the things that we think. If anyone questions it, we, we get really defensive, irritated, and maybe even feel personally attacked. Like, guys, I came out to have a good time and honestly, I'm feeling so attacked right now. I don't know if this podcaster felt personally attacked by me questioning the answers that were given, but it certainly seemed like the response I got was coming back on the offensive. This person believes in predestination and that God decides before we're even born what will happen to us. Well, you guys all know that I'm a big proponent of free will, so obviously I was about to go step to this predestination rhetoric. <laughs> so I went on Instagram and asked, why is it important for us to live Christian lives and to try to make good choices if God is just 
going to burn or reward us however he sees fit. Um, and there's nothing we can do to change it either way. I said we either have free will or we don't. And if we don't, why does it matter what we do? Because we can't control anything. It seems to me that this predestination idea of God lands you in the same practical position of like a nihilist who believes nothing matters and therefore we should just do whatever we want and live for ourselves. Um, in fact, this is the very argument that Satan uses against God. He says it doesn't matter what you do because God is just going to tyrannize you either way because he's mean. So you might as well just reject him and do your own thing. This is why the great controversy to me is so high stakes because if what Satan accused God of was true, he would be completely justified in his rebellion. Uh, so this podcaster and I had several back and forths on Instagram, uh, but here's the response that struck me the most. They said, it's not either we have free will or we don't. Again, you're simplifying because you think it's necessary for all divine concepts to fit into a human formula. It's not. And you keep dismissing the infinite explanation as if it's irrelevant, but you don't actually explain why you're dismissing it. Just like in the story of Pharaoh, God hardens Pharaoh's heart, but Pharaoh still has to deal with the consequences of his decisions. God loved Jacob and hated Esau before they were born, and he still held Esau accountable. Judas was the fulfillment of a prophecy, but he was still destroyed for his betrayal. The Bible is filled with examples of God's sovereignty, and humans still paying the price. Again, you cannot understand it, you cannot like it, but you can't deny the Bible supports both. Um, okay, wow. Uh, did, did this explanation not just undermine this person's original premise? Am I crazy here, you guys? If God hated Esau from the beginning and punished him for it, it literally didn't matter what Esau did. If Judas was used for God's own ends and then destroyed anyway for something he apparently didn't choose to do, that's called abuse. Hopefully you guys understand my reasoning for rejecting predestination. After all, every episode of this podcast shills for free will. But if you don't, I'm happy to answer any questions. Um, for this episode, though, I'm not trying to refute predestination. I just wanted to point out that this back and forth I had with this other podcaster made me do a double take and say... Is this how I react when someone challenges my closely held beliefs? Um, we all have things that we're blind to, that we don't want to let go of, that we think we understand, but are we willing to have our minds changed or do we go on the attack when we're challenged? Um, I was asking strategic questions to this person to hopefully expose the cognitive dissonance of their viewpoint, but I would guess all the other people who keep asking about predestination do it because they don't know why it doesn't sit well with them. And if all the responses are accusatory, like, you just don't want to accept that God wants to crush people, um, like, it's probably not really helping anyone. And it made me stop and think, am I deluding myself that I'm willing to hear new concepts and adjust my thinking when I should? Um, when what I believe not only doesn't make sense, but probably is hurting people, am I willing to admit that? Um, I wouldn't be here doing this podcast if I didn't have strong opinions. 
as you have guessed, um, and things that I think are certainly worth sharing, but I also don't want to lose sight of the fact that I probably have very large blind spots, as everyone does, that I'm not aware of. Uh, what do you guys think? What do you do when you hear new ideas? What do you do with them? Do you brush them aside and justify what you already think? Do you take them into serious consideration? Do you tell the person asking you what they actually think and why they're wrong? Um, if you've ever changed your mind about something important, you know it can be really difficult. It can be painful. It can take time. Years even. But are you willing to do it? I often struggle to know how much effort to put into trying to convince someone else about something <laughs> because it's so rare that we humans actually do update our assumptions and on one hand if you badger someone or ram something down their throat that they're <laughs> not wanting um you sour them to anything you might have to say in the future on the other hand if you never have the courage to challenge someone's closely held beliefs you could be leaving them in the lurch when patience and time might have softened them then, of course, you always still run the risk that you yourself are as wrong as the next guy and are telling people something that's just flatly unhelpful. I, look, I don't have the answer to all the shades and hues of how we should approach each other with new ideas in any given circumstance, but I think at least if I can remind myself that we're all stumbling around half-blind, and avoid hammering someone who deigns to ask a question, um, that's at least a good start. And one day, if I can keep that in mind, it will all come clear. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then we shall know face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know even as I am known. Okay, next topic. Um, so we Adventists tend to have a lot of guilt, you may have noticed this, uh, which maybe it's excessive and unnecessary, but at the same time, we humans can kind of be miserable despite ourselves. Um, if you've had a relationship with God for any amount of time, I'm sure you've felt those ups and downs, the times when you know you're not at your best, the times that contrast with the really transcendent times that you remember and hold on to as meaningful. I've been in one of those places recently, but I, I wasn't really even thinking about it. Um, then I came across an old blog I used to have back in like 2012, and it turns out who understands your struggles better than you from a different time? Um, <laughs> I'd written a post called We Are All Gomer, referring to the book of Hosea, and when I reread it again the other day, I was like, yes, you go six years ago, me. I needed to hear that right now. So, I hope 2012 me can speak to you as effectively as she spoke to 2018 me, um, and give you some encouragement as we head into the season that is supposed to be joyful but can get wrecked by our humanity sometimes. Okay, so here is my old blog post. We Christians, we Adventists even, try to do good, don't we? And even more than that, we try to live right, we try to live all sanctified and holy, and we read and know everything that we as Christians should do in the Bible and in the council, and nine times out of ten we proceed to go right out and not do those exact things. This is true, isn't it? We all do this. We all fail more often than we succeed. After all, Paul was pretty stinking right when he said, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Um, I think we've all experienced this. It's frustrating and disheartening and sometimes 
just downright depressing. So you strive to do right, you fall flat on your face, then you sit back and feel guilty, struggling to pick yourself up and feeling almost too ashamed to come back to God, which inevitably spirals downward until there's nothing you can do but turn back to God, like the prodigal son pleading only to be like one of the servants. This is a side note interjection, that was one sentence. Um, way to go, 2012 me with the run-on sentences. Okay, back to the... <laughs> back to the blog. There's a lot of talk, and I find myself affirming this to other people all the time, that there's nothing you can do that is too dreadful for God to love you. No sin so great that he won't want you back. And I kick my feet up in my haughty, self-righteous piousness and think, but of course, this is just for you. I would never feel that way. I'm a Christian do-gooder. And we know God loves us, don't we? We know that God still loves the drug dealer and the child abuser and, oh, shock and horror, even the murderer, despite the things they've done. We know that God loves everyone else, and we know that he loves us, but when you're staring a choice right in the face and your mind is telling you that Thing A is right and good and you must do this and everything else in your nature is saying, yeah, but who cares? Thing B is where it's at. That. That is what gets me. Isn't it those times when you know what's right, you know exactly what God is asking you to do, but you just don't want to do it and you don't really care, so you don't. And the devil wins out right then and there in a whirlwind. And the boxing bell is dinging and the ref is holding up your wrist yelling and good is lying on the ground, pummeled at your feet. And that's when you blink and say, what have I done? Is it just me or can you relate to this? Then you sink to the floor in a wave of dreadful emotions and think, but I know God. I know what he's done for me. I've seen him lead me in the past, protect me, fight for me, win me, and then I go and turn around and repay him like this? Maybe the drug dealer has never known right from wrong. Maybe the child abuser was abused himself. Maybe the murderer was not in his right mind. None of that is a justification, but maybe none of them knew God. But I do, we do, and still, we're pulling the bloodied knife from Jesus back and saying, I know what you've sacrificed for me, and this is how much I care. That can make one feel guilty, my friend. Um, but what's worse is the tenth time it happens, the fifteenth, the hundredth time, and you're still finding yourself in that unstoppable undulation of trying to do right and sometimes succeeding, but mostly not. And we come back to this point that says, Jesus loves you, or no sin is too great, or we all make mistakes, but God forgives us. But yet, we're still afraid. Afraid to come boldly before the throne of grace because we're despicable. Afraid that God is looking harshly at us, saying, You're asking for my help, but I know what you've done. Afraid sometimes even to pray. But why? There are only three options I can figure. It could be that God is really looking harshly at us, arms folded, foot tapping, reproving. But that's not true. We know it's not. We're told over and over by a plethora of people. So then, if God's not like that, maybe it's simply that we are. 
maybe we almost don't want him to take us back for the sake of our own sense of justice, because how could God be so naive to think that we'll come running back and love him like we should have all along, when we all know that ten minutes later we'll be whoring ourselves out to sin just like Gomer, and secretly we wish Hosea had just said, I'm too tired of trying with you, Gomer, I give up, you're hopeless. Well, maybe it's the second option, but then maybe the third option is that the great controversy is being fought right on the battlegrounds of our hearts. We're pushed and pulled and dragged around in a barrage of spiritual influences. Satan is screaming in our ears, look how sucky you are. How are you ever going to win when you're playing against your own team? It's the old stop hitting yourself as the bully makes your arm do it. Satan doesn't play fair and he doesn't care who knows it. He's too busy convincing us that God is either too soft to win against him or too mean to even be worth our consideration. But then God is gently in our other ear whispering, it's not true. I love you. Come back. I'll pick you up, dust you off. I'll fix up your battle wounds because you're mine. But it's hard for us to hear amid the noise of the lunchroom and the bullies who are giving us spiritual wedgies and wet willies and making us slap ourselves in the face. And that's why God asks us to just hold up a sec. Just be still for once and listen. Just give him a chance to speak, because he will. So, have we figured this whole sanctification thing out? Nope. Are we anywhere nearer to figuring it out? Well, for me, it's debatable with a side of probably not anywhere close. But it's not over yet. God's not through with us yet. The Holy Spirit is still trying to speak to us, and that means a heck of a lot more than we realize sometimes. So all we can do is walk away, searching for God once more, looking for where we last misplaced Him, because He didn't go anywhere. We simply wandered away in our dunderheadedness, but He's calling to us, and He's never far. Now, we just have to turn around and look. Here's a passage from Desire of Ages, page 356. It is Satan's work to fill men's hearts with doubt. He leads them to look upon God as a stern judge. He tempts them to sin, and then to regard themselves as too vile to approach their Heavenly Father or to excite his pity. The Lord understands all this. Jesus assures his disciples of God's sympathy for them in their needs and weaknesses. Not a sigh is breathed, not a pain felt, not a grief pierces the soul, but the throb vibrates the Father's heart. The Bible shows us God in his high and holy place, not in a state of inactivity, not in silence and solitude, but surrounded by 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands of holy intelligences, all waiting to do his will. Through channels which we cannot discern, he is in active communication with every part of his dominion. But it is in this speck of a world, in the souls that he gave his only begotten son to save, that his interest and the interest of all heaven is centered. God is bending from his throne to hear the cry of the oppressed. To every sincere prayer he answers, Here I am. He uplifts the distressed and the downtrodden. In all our afflictions, he is afflicted. In every temptation, in every trial, the angel of his presence is near to deliver. Well, I guess now we know at the very least 21-year-old me was on par with Ellen White in my run-on sentences. <laughs> Hopefully my writing has become a little bit more like Ernest Hemingway in the interim, but I hope you guys got something out of that. Um, it was 
fun for me to go back and read it and see what I had to say that is still relevant to my struggle now. Um, but let me know what you think. Have a great weekend, and I'll talk to you next week.